History Session 51, Rabbi Blyweiss. We are talking about uh, the days of Herod in which the unquestioned Gedolei Hador are Hillel and Shammai, the last of the Zugos. We've been tracing the mid-Second Temple period where the Jewish, the Jewish generations are not consistently but generally led by um, pairs of Gedolim, one Nasi, one Avbeistin, and Hillel and Shammai we spoke about and said probably too quickly yesterday uh, some, of, some of their famous uh, points of greatness. We know that they were very different in their association of Hillel being the kind, gentle, all-embracing Baal Chesed, Shammai with being the Kaptan, even though he too was very gentle uh, Baal Chesed. But um, we know that they had different approaches. They also had different schools based Shammai, based Hillel. Despite all of that, Hillel and Shammai themselves personally were united in warm friendship and mutual respect. That's something you don't always get. We were just talking now about all these different differences between Jews and something that we don't always remember to do. We can agree to disagree. And what we're supposed to be is uh, friends at the end of the day. Um, they both made many decrees, many takanos together for the sake of the Jewish people. Even when it came to the point that their technical halachic disagreements threatened to divide them into two nations, and I refer you to the first chapter of, Mishnah, of Mishnayos in Yevamos. Anybody learn Yevamos? It's the Dafyomi that they're doing. You learn the first chapter. At the end of the first chapter of Yevamos, they effectively come down to, I won't get into the whole machlokis there, but if you consider the ramifications of Beit Shammai's view with Beit Hillel's view, they are not compatible. And they, very good, Barak. The implication is they will not be able to marry one another. And if they can't marry one another, then you've created two different nations, which is heavy, serious stuff. And the Mishnah concludes that's not what we'll say. We're going to paskin like one of them. The Mishnah famously uses the Lashon, Elu, the Elu, Divrei, Elohim, Chaim. Both this view and that view are both words of a living God. They're both Lashem Shemaim. And, um, we embraced them both, and that was what they did. When was there not unity? This is a really significant thing. I'm sorry not everybody is here for this, but maybe we'll repeat this as well. In Beis Hillel, Beis Shammai were big academies, big Torah centers. As we said yesterday, the largest yeshivas ever until this time, at least. And there were a lot of great figures, personalities that come out of here. Of course, Hillel and Shammai, uh, the leaders, but many others as well. But there were other people in school, and tell me if this starts to sound familiar, because it's a really, it's a very, very uh, relevant <laughs> point. It comes up in the Gemara and Hedrin, and also in Sota and elsewhere. There were certain people who were learning in these schools, and they learned something. They were not nobodies, and they were not ab abject amehaaretz on the one hand. On the other hand, they were certainly not gedolim. They were described as Talmidei Beis Hillel Ubeis Shammai Shiloshimshu Kol Tzorkan. Their problem was they didn't do adequate Shimush. Kol Tzorkan. They hadn't really learned enough, but they kind of thought they did. And because they could talk a good game and maybe they're charismatic leaders, they arose in prominence and attracted a following. And Chazal say because of these people, Rabu Machlokis Israel. that's when... Machlokis begins, yeah, we'll close the, close the that's when Machlokis begins to infect the Jewish people. And Julian, you haven't been here to, to hear this, but we've gradually moved in the second level period from an existential 
situation in which there was initially no machlokis in the days of prophecy. There was no, no arguments because you knew exactly what a Kaddish Baruch wanted from you. The tap of prophecy was turned off. That water tap was turned off. No more prophecy. You had Chachamim arising. And then with the Zugos, you had the first Machlokis that lasted several generations. With Hillel and Shammai yesterday, we saw the first, the next three Machlokises, uh, Machlokot. Uh, in the next, so now we have four arguments. But now you start to have these prominent figures who attracted a following, who really didn't know enough to assume the position that they assumed, but that didn't stop them. Sometimes people like the glory, the honor, the, uh, the, the name, the title rabbi. And they started, um, and from this point on, we're gonna start to see increasing amounts of machlokis, arguments between Jews. I say that it's extremely relevant today. I was at, when I was at YU, there was a figure in the modern Orthodox world who I happened to know personally and seemed like a nice enough person. And um, he was invited by the student union to, uh, to come speak. And then one of the primary people at YU had him publicly uninvited. And that, especially from my background, coming from a liberal, uh, liberal arts kind of an education where that seems so intolerant and to publicly humiliate this figure, what, what had the figure done that was so wrong? So I went over and I had a connection with the senior rabbi at YU who had done this public uninviting, and I asked him very respectfully, I said, I don't know the situation, I just want to understand what happened, especially since I thought this other rabbi was a very decent fellow. No, I can say it, it's not Lashon Hara. And I think it's important too because I agree till today this other fellow who was uninvited, um, his name was Shlomo Riskin. From, from who calls himself the chief rabbi, who's my former boss. Lovely person. And I have no personal, I have nothing against him. Um, he just says a lot of stuff. He's, he's a good example of a Talmud Chacham, or a Talmud Beis Hill, Beis Shammai Shaloshimish Kotsorko. And I asked Rav Shechter, Shlita, why he had publicly uninvited him. He said, I have nothing against Rabbi Riskin myself. He said, the problem is, is he teaches things in the name of Rav Soloveitchik, our Rebbe, um, who's, who's considered the, the, the guttle at YU. He says he teaches things in his name and he doesn't really know. He was at most in the shear for three years. He sat in the back row. He got half the information right. A lot of it he got wrong. He's not a prominent Talmud Chacham. Um, but he says a lot of things that are outrageous because he has such a high profile and he's such a, uh, an, an influence among Jews. It's important that people know that that's not somebody that you should listen to for any um, authoritative Torah. Maybe he'd make a good congregational rabbi or something like that, but not, not to be of, of prominence. And Rav Schechter felt, L'shem Shemayim, I believe 100%, it was not doing it out of animosity or venom or anything like that. He really felt he had to do, he had to save Torah. To preserve Torah, sometimes people who are distorting Torah have to be put in their place uh, to, 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 as a message to the population. Here's somebody you can't really rely on. He doesn't deserve a, vo a voice. And, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you, just most recently, let's say it was, I think it was a couple of years ago, they caught Rabbi Riskin on video um, pandering to the Christian population that he gets a lot of money from um, and, and saying, oh, Jesus was a rabbi and a great guy and all kinds of things that are, frankly, a distortion of the Jewish version. And soon enough, uh, I don't know if we'll quite get there today, but, um, oh no, we're not going to get there today, but uh, tomorrow, the next day, we're going to get to Christianity. Which is happening right around now too, in the early, and, 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 and um, Jesus was not a rabbi; he was a rasha. And to say otherwise is to distort the Torah record. And and so and so and he was caught on video, and it became a whole scandal where people criticized him and say, "How dare you? You can't speak for Torah Judaism and say things against the Torah." 
to the point that Rabbi Riskin himself retracted it and was very embarrassed. It was a big, it was a big, um, it was, it was something, was that? Well, and it was, it was really uh, humiliating to him because he was so obviously pandering to this, to this, uh, to this other constituency and, uh, and he was caught. He was caught in the act event, effectively. And that's, that's, he's, but he's not the only one. There are many, many people uh, who, who are, who are low shimshu kol Khan who speak for Torah and are really not qualified to do so. Wait, and, they're, and they're the ones with Rabbi Machlokas Pistro. Who's the other Rabbi Shachter is more qualified to say that he's not qualified? Um, Rabbi Shachter is, and in my, you know, I, I don't, you, you'll, you'll take this or leave it, but I, I, I think he is. He is, uh, certainly in that world in YU, he's revered as one of the leading Kalmanich Chachamim. Um, Rav Shechter, Riskin would be the first one to tell you that Rav Shechter is, 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 is far senior oh, to himself. Oh, no, 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 Rav Riskin, Rav Riskin can't, he can't argue with the obvious truth. Rav Shechter is so head over heels, well, like more like on a higher level. I mean, in another case, Avi Weiss, who's, who's in the similar category of Rabbi Riskin, it seems to me. Um, at one point, there was a whole dispute about the women's tefillah groups, and a woman called Rav Schechter on the phone, and she asked this question that you're asking right now. She said, I, I understand that there's a hierarchy and a difference between you rabbis, but you say that the women's tefillah groups are, 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 are forbidden, and Rabbi Weiss says that they're permitted. Why can't I listen to him instead of you? Why does Rabbi Weiss not have a vote? On, on such things. Rav Schechter says, Rabbi Weiss is a wonderful man in many ways. I don't think he's entitled to the position when he himself, he's not a leading posek on any level, and he is going against the consensus of the posek in the modern Orthodox world. Forget the Haredi world. The Haredi world would never even consider this issue. But Rav Soloveitchik, their Rebbe, and Rabbi Moshe Feinstein certainly, and, and, and almost everybody who's a big name, they said that these women's feeling groups were forbidden. And so she said, well, how can I know that Rabbi Weiss is not in your category, Rev Schechter? So Rev Schechter said, they said, let me illustrate this way. And if you know Rev Schechter, he doesn't have an ounce of um, grandstanding or, or arrogance about him. He's the most humble individual. And, but he said, to illustrate this point to the woman, he said, when um, Avi Weiss was in my... Um, it was in my class in Smicha, he did very poorly on, my, on the exams that I gave him. As a way of expressing the difference, there is a hierarchy among rabbis, and they're not entitled to equal voices. So these are Talmudah Hill, Basil, Beishame, Shaloshim, Shukot, Trokan, Rabbi Machlokas, Israel, and it's, a, it's an ongoing issue till today. We have, we have small rabbis teaching in the name of orthodoxy and Torah things that are against the Torah, and they're distorting Torah in the process. But Rabbi even if Rabbi Salvechek said that when we were turned on, Rabbi Shachter was going to say they were allowed, for whatever reason he thought. But Rabbi Shachter is not only speaking his own name. He has all the posts to rely on, and Avi Weiss has no. But I'm saying if he came out and said that, then people would follow him just because he said it, even if they have equally valid that's what it should be. But the problem is, especially in the big world out there, is people often today, kind of like the Greeks, have already decided what they want to do. And then they're looking for rabbi who, who are telling them the things that they want to hear. And if there's a rabbi out there who calls himself orthodox and tells you what you want to hear, that's my rabbi. It sort of sounds like the reform movement, but there, that exists within... No, but Avi can back up why, why he thinks some of the are okay. Not, not halachically. And he has, doesn't have a voice. He doesn't have a voice. There are people who are called... They're not called a bar hachi. They're not called a bar hachi, which means they're not, they don't really count... In a discussion, you have to have big shoulders to take on the establishment, take on all of the post scheme of the day. So, no, but like Rabbi Shachter's come up with some controversial things, I'm sure, that some before him might have said, 
maybe, 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 maybe. I'm using this to illustrate. I'm using this to illustrate within the modern Orthodox world. Um, certainly, certainly, there's nothing to talk about. Unfortunately, the world is somewhat uh, factious today. A lot of different factions uh, in terms in terms of how things break down. Um, okay, that's to illustrate that point. Uh, unintended tangent, but I don't mind taking them every now and then. Uh, I think it, it makes a point. The um, Shammai dies, and the Sanhedrin Gedola's power with these difficult times, I think always in the background, one of the difficult things I'm trying to give over in history is <coughs> many complex processing processes happening simultaneously. You got Herod over here doing his mischief, you got Hillel, <coughs> Shammai, base Hillel, base Shammai, You've got the nation splitting up into various sectarian practices. You've got the Roman Empire rising like a lion and, and, and threatening to swallow up everything. They've already taken over Eretz Judea. All of these things are happening concurrently. And so generally, as much as there's been a, a mini-revolution in Torah and Torah learning, the, there's also been a political power struggle. The Tzedukim, the Hellenized Jews, are decisively in power. Herod, of course, being, being the, uh, the most of the Hellenized Jews. Uh, the Jews are being massacred and pushed out. Torah is now diminishing, and the Sanhedrin Gedola's power is diminishing. And they recognize this by changing the structure of authority. Up until this point, we've had the period of the Zugos, five pairs who've led the Jews. It's now coming to an end. When Shammai dies, they retire officially the position of Abbasdin as a leader of the Jews. The name will still be used. People will use the name, but it doesn't mean the same thing. And they, to, what they do is they want to consolidate Hillel's power as the Nasi, as the primary leader of the Jews, and so he becomes the sole leader. Uh, they take some symbolic measures to try to reinforce that. Previously, to give smicha, smicha being um, conferring authority, a, 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 for example, to sit on the Sanhedrin, a person needed to be a musmach, needed to have legitimate smicha, and um, something we no longer have. We'll see that in, in, in a couple of weeks. The Romans will eventually discontinue smicha, but who, who got the first smicha in history? Even before Yeshua, but you're on the right, you're in the right phase in history. Moshe Rabbeinu got it from Hashem. Moshe gives it to the Skanim and then to Yoshua, and then we have the Masora that we've been tracing all the way down. Um, now Smicha is an official, legitimate, now at this point in the second double period, it's an official legitimate institution. It shows who is a legitimate rabbi and who is one of these other rabbis who are Shaloshim Shukot Sorokan that we just referred to uh, a few minutes ago. Now what they do, it used to be that any three musmachim, as long as you had Smicha, you together with, other, with two other people with Smicha could then confer Smicha. And now they change that. Out of cover for Hillel, they decree that the Nasi had to be present at the ceremony, at the, at the uh, smicha ceremony for any new member of the Sanhedrin. Why is it important to centralize, to consolidate leadership? In a time of corruption, where it could be, as we say, a hefkervelt, that everybody does what they feel like doing, now more than ever, there's a need to say, no, there's a standard, there's a structure, there's an authority structure, and not everybody is, uh, is equally entitled. Ilan? If Avram just kept young and knew the Torah, like they practiced it and then they kept teaching it to their kids, yeah. why was there, like, then wouldn't it come through all the way to Moshe? Like the Torah thing? They were not mechuyavim. They kept the mitzvahs. Uh, added volu voluntarily, but there was no obligation to do so. The only time that there were mitzvahs, this is apropos our discussion privately earlier today, a mitzvah is something that one keeps 
primarily when Hashem tells us I have an obligation to do that, that was only relevant from Har Sinai, when the right. Jewish people as, as a whole accepted the yoke of the Torah, and then you're talking about smicha, but that's only relevant from the times of Moshe. They, knew it, though, right? they, knew, they the knew it, and they voluntarily kept it, but it's not the same thing as being part of the covenant to no, keep the Torah. They, like, when they come, like, why, did, why do we say came There was a Messiah from Adam Arishon. We traced it in this class, too. There were different Messorahs that traced through the primary holy people through the generations, but smicha refers to something much more specific and has to do with the giving of the Torah. Hillel makes many decrees. Uh, I'll, I'll mention a few, of, a few of them. At one point, the persecution is bad, even down in Egypt. And there was a practice the non-Jews used to steal brides at their chuppah. This is down in Alexandria. And so um, Hillel makes a new decree. You remember that there's initially there's Kiddushin, and 12 months later, there's Nesuin. The wife only comes home with the husband after 12 years. She's effectively, 12 months, excuse me. She's effectively married at the beginning of the process, but she stays in her father's house. And then there's Nisuin. So um, Hillel now makes a decree that Kiddushin are only valid from the chuppah on. Meaning that, it, like we do today, Kiddushin and Nisuin are combined. And there isn't this 12 month grace period. Um, that way, there's a, they avoid because. Otherwise, the, those, those women would, would produce children out of wedlock. They'd be, they'd be married, there'd be an issue of adultery, there'd be an issue of mamzerus, and this avoids that problem. Uh, another decree that, that Hillel makes, Jews previous, in previous generations, really back to the Torah, it was a given that Jews lent one another money. It's what we're here for. You have a problem, your problem is my problem. Our job as Jews is to be no sabaol, to carry one another's burdens with each other. You don't have money, okay, so let me, what do you need? Here, take what you need, help yourself, right? That's the Jewish ethos. But as times, stop, it's distracting. As, time, as times, uh, uh, as, as the Jews continue to decline, uh, Jews start worrying, and this is gonna sound very familiar to those of us who are holding in Makos, um, they started worrying, uh-oh, what's going to be next year with the Shemitah year? Uh, and if I lend money, I may never get it back. And so Hillel makes a takana that you might have heard from, perhaps, called Prozbul. Right? And we're not talking about a football game that takes place in this time of year. Uh, it's actually a, a, a very legitimate way of making the loans survive the Shemitah year, Shalotino Delis Kushnealovin, so that you don't lock the door between prospective lenders. Uh, so that uh, now uh, nowadays Prozbul only pertains even in Hillel's day, days when the mitzvah of Shemitah, Shemitah's Ksofim is Dirabanan, it's only a rabbinic level. Um, it was rabbinic since the time of of Chorban Rishon from the first temple. And that's, that's, the, that's the institution of Prozbul. And he makes other takanas as well. Um, there are other great rabbis during this, during this period. Maybe you've heard of a couple of these names. Um, they include Ben Badbag. Badbag, if you, how, how well do you know that it's the end of the fifth parak of Avos? Ben Badbag, Ben Hehe. They're both contemporaries. Oh, I don't know any song. You'll sing it for me. How does it go? Oh, I don't know it. Oh, you'll teach me. I want to hear uh, okay, so Ben Badbag, um, the 
Uh, ben Be Bag Bag stands for Ben Gioris. He's the son of a of a of a female convert. Uh, he teaches he teaches Afachba Afachba the Chulaba. Turn over the body of oral Torah, which we call the Talmud or the Talmudic literature, and turn it over. Everything is in there. Uva Sechizet and ponder it. Go look into it deeply. Uh, teaches Ben Bagbag, his friend Ben Heihe. Um, anybody know what the Hey stands for? He takes the two Hey's from Avram and Sarah's names and incorporates them into his own name, Ben Hey Hey. Uh, remember, they, they both inherited the Hey to give them a certain elevated status. He teaches, among other things, Bufum Sarah Agra. According to the toil is the reward, or as my PE coach used to like to say to us, no pain, no gain, you know that one. That, uh, that that's, that's the way, that's the Torah approach, that sometimes if you want something of importance, of, 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 uh, of importance, you're going to have to sweat and work for it. We mentioned Baba Ben Muta. Let me tell you an important story. And who, who asked yesterday about the building of the base of Mikdash and the, uh, who was it? Jake. Jake. Oh, so Jake. Uh, you'll, you'll hear now, finally, I'll get to your answer. The uh, building of the base of Mikdash. Herod's, uh, the piece de resistance, his masterwork of all of the various buildings that we talked about that he built, um, he built a, he rebuilt the base of Mikdash. Now we know, Josephus writes this too, you know what Herod used to do? Herod used to go around and dress like a pauper and go into the streets and go over to people and say, hey, what do you think of Herod? See, it's true that our friend, our anti-hero Herod, uh, was a miserable, nasty, idolatrist, adulterous murderer and all that. But you know, he also had a heart and he wanted people to love him. And poor Herod didn't think that anybody loved him. So he went around to the streets. I'm embellishing for <coughs> narrative purposes. Wait, he was probably clinically like... He probably had lots of clinical problems. I would agree with that. Um, megalomania not being, the, not being the least of them. He, uh, Which might make him hunter, right? If he's a shota, I'm not sure he was a shota. He was a Russia, uh, just because the person's a Russia and it, maybe they have clinical problems doesn't make them exempt. The, uh, in any case, he would ask people, what do you think of Herod? And pity the poor guy who said, Herod, are you kidding? Who went then on a rampage uh, talk, telling him exactly what he felt about Herod and Herod would then say, aha, well I'm Herod and off with your head. Uh, and like that. Well, this, the Gemara in Baba Basra tells a story uh, in more detail. After he poked Baba Benbuta's eyes out with porcupine pins, he, um, he goes over to the blind sage and again, incognito, or so he thinks, he tries to start up with Baba Benbuta. What do you think of Herod? And he goads him on and he, he, he's looking for him to badmouth the king. And Baba Benbuta refuses to take the bait and he says nothing negative. And at the end of the dialogue, Herod is immediately stunned and he has a realization. He thinks, this is the real thing. This person truly is a tzaddik as they claim he was. I never knew it. Uh-oh, if he's the real thing, if he really is a chacham tzaddik, tzaddik olam, so what about all the rest of the rabbis who I've killed? thinking that they were also vying for my power and were secretly plotting and, and all the rest of that, what have I done? And he asks Baba Ben Buta, he says, he says, how can I ever 
how can I ever repay all of the terrible things I've done? Don't forget, Herod did know he was a son of converts. He did know. Eliyahu Navi is often the figure in these cases, but the Gemara that I'm referring to explicitly no, I mean like, names Baba Ben Ruta. I mean, like, I mean, like in the Gemara one, that he's like trying to get Chuba, and he tells him to be the base of the Gash. But what was Eliyahu Not according to the Gemara that I'm referring to, unless some of Baba Ben Ruta has a body double. Go look it up. It's well, it's it's Dalad Amad Aleph. Okay, it's possible, but he's it, identified as Baba. Baba Bemuta says, Kibisa Ora Shal Olam, you've extinguished the light of the world by killing off so many great luminaries, so many great sages. Now, busy yourself in Biosek um, in Ora Shal Olam. Go um, busy yourself in relighting the lamp of the world. That would be the base of Mikdash. And what we know, parenthetically, was the base of Mikdash at this stage in history was falling into shambles. It was falling into disrepairs on every possible level, and it was in desperate need of rebuilding. You remember the, the, the first version of the second temple was built minimally. They had little budget, they had, little, they, had, they had few means at their disposal, and so Shivat Sion built halachically, technically, a kosher building, but just. It was revised two times in the interim. Anybody remember uh, who the first renovations were under? Shimon Tzadik. Again, by the Chashmonaim. But again, now we're finding ourselves uh, over 100 years later, and it's in great need of rebuilding. And Herod hears the idea. He fears, though, maybe back in Rome, they won't endorse the plan. So Baba Ben Buta suggests uh, a plan. He says like this, go send a messenger to ask permission from the Romans to build or rebuild or renovate the base of Mikdash. But what you should do is make sure that messenger takes his good old time and takes at least three years. And in the meantime, you start building. And by the time they get word, and even if they say no, what you'll say is, oh, it's not my fault. The messenger took too long. I've already built it. Oh, whoops. What can I do? So uh, maybe the messenger can get killed, but what does Herod, Herod care about, about, about uh, human life? Since when has he ever cared about the individual? The, uh, oh, that's true. That's, that's an interesting point. You have a kasha in the Gemara. Go look up the Gemara and see what the Mepharshim say. Um, by the way, later on, the Romans get the message, and they see through the ruse, and they say like this. They answer Herod. They say, do not build. And it's too late, of course, because Herod's already started. They say, do not build, and if you've already done it, we know where you live. The book of your heritage is in our vaults, and we can get you, Herod. We know where you come from, and your inauspicious roots. They say that threateningly, although the Gemara never elaborates what they wind up doing with that Sefer Yuchsin, with that book of, uh, of, his, of his relations. Um, Herod then sets about to rebuild the base of Mikdash, and I mentioned when we went on our tour a couple weeks ago in the, in the Machon of Mikdash, and we looked around, we saw the models, the Herodian version, the fourth uh, version of the base of Mikdash, was not necessarily the most glorious version. Uh, in the past, the most glorious version was certainly Shlomo HaMelech's, and in the future, it'll, all of the above will be outdone by the third base of Mikdash, which will be the most spectacular of all buildings ever. Um, but the Herodian version of the Second Temple will be the final and definitive version for the Mishnah, 
for the uh, for what we learn in halacha about the base of Mikdash. It's the one that's featured in almost every model you've ever seen, except I guess if they're specifically modeling the, the first temple. Um, and he builds it. He uses his own treasures. He uses the, 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 the tombs that he raided. Remember we said he, he raided the king's tomb. In one episode, he reaches the tombs of David and Shlomo, and um, he sends two youth down to the treasures and a fire as they're about to go and raid the, the treasures, the fire comes out, killing them and almost killing Herod too. Herod barely gets away. He, his style of building the building is described in the Gemara. He uses blue and green and white alternating marble stones. Had a gorgeous, gorgeous, mesmerizing kind of an effect on anybody who would look at it. Interesting. He imported it. It was marble stones, and I don't know. But I don't know about the. Um, I don't know if Chazal comment on the marble. I know what the archaeologists tell us is that there is no indi- and, and the uh, geologists tell us there's no indigenous marble in Eretz Israel. Most of the marble was imported. The closest marble is up in Turkey. So, uh, but Herod could import and had the money to do so. So the, he built this uh, beautiful, beautiful um, green, blue, red. Green, 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 blue, white, and when you looked at it, the Gemara describes it had the effect of watching the waves in an ocean. When you when you looked at the walls of the base of Mikdash, uh, Herod though didn't wasn't satisfied. Didn't feel it was lush enough, so he almost overlaid the green, blue, white with gold. And the rabbis say, no, no, don't do that. You've got it just perfect, and they dissuade him. They. Um, the people who've been oppressed under Herod for all these years, their oppression, their suffering gives way to a new simcha, a new elation as they celebrate the newly reconstituted, rebuilt the base of Mikdash. In the process of rebuilding, uh, there is no temple that's functional, so they, the Rambam describes that they were temporarily allowed to offer korbonos on the altar, even without a building there. And remember that, that was something, that was a situation that they had even at the beginning of the second temple, before they built the actual temple. They could also bring sacrifices. The Gemara <coughs> describes uh, in Tainis that Hashem supports their enthusiasm when they set about their task of rebuilding the Mesa Mikdash. Obviously, the Kodesh Kadoshim was not built by any ordinary workers, but by Kohanim, and only Kohanim. Everybody who's a part of the process, though, Kohanim, Levim, Yisraelim, um, they build with such enthusiasm that Hashem supports them and brings what's called Gishme Bracha, the, uh, the ideal, nicest kind of rain. Uh, it rained at night during these years um, when, when it was not going to conflict with, uh, with their building activities. And in the end, he produced the most spectacular building of all time. Don't trust me. Listen to the Gemara on the topic. Uh, uh, the Gemara says, Mishlo ra'a binyan hordus. Whoever has not seen the building that Hordus built, lo ra'a binyan no'e miyamav. Has never seen a built, beautiful building in his days. Interestingly, in the Roman archives, there are accounts of the base of Mikdash described by, by non-Jewish visitors. And this became a major tourist attraction during this period. The, the non-Jews flocked to see this glorious building that Herod had built. And they too describe almost word for word, whoever has not seen Herod's building has not seen a beautiful building in, his, in all of his days. Today, even till today, it remains, how's this? I'm, I'm going to get all tour guidey on you. Uh, it remains till today the world's largest religious site and the largest man-made platform. How's that for superlatives? 
meaning the whole plaza level was a was uh, artificially created. Herod arguably expanded the dimension of what we call the Temple Mount, not the temple, but that box upon which the temple stood. And those of you who were with me on the tour, I, we described this somewhat, uh, so that the western wall that we have today, many feel, I don't think this is absolutely 100% certain, but many feel reasonably that the whole western wall was an addition, brought out several meters from the pre-existing temple box, the temple mount, and that the stones that you see, especially further down, are the Herodian stones. You can pick them out as being the large embossed stones with a, with a beautifully finished, smooth frame around the stones. Um, that's what most people feel are Herodian stones, and they're reflected in the different structures around the country that Herod built. They, uh, <coughs> he also builds, in addition to the temple, he builds in the north, the north, I mentioned this, the northwest corner, the Antonia Fortress dedicated to his friend Mark Anthony. The Romans, as we said, would be in awe. He builds a special structure where the Al-Aqsa Mosque stands today on the south side of the Temple Mount. He builds what's called the Stav Malkuti, the royal portico, which is kind of like bleachers. That effect that people can come and just watch the Avoda in the base of Mikdash. And indeed, they would come and they'd watch the wonders of the day. The Romans, the pagans, had no, any, no vocabulary for what they witnessed. And they described this also in their archives. They say there's an, it, back in Judea, in the temple that Herod builds, they say they have an entire, can you get this, an entire day of the week where nobody does any work. Ever heard of such a thing? Can you imagine a week without Shabbos? I mean, today the world is so uh, influenced by the Christians and the Muslims that the work week also has a weekend. But in the pagan world, who needed a weekend? Every day was somehow just another day. And the Romans were mesmerized by this. I think that they do. I think that they do in different ways. But it's not, it's not obvious. Certainly in the ancient paganism, it was not a given. Um, they, were, they, saw also, they saw a sea without life in it. That's the, down in the Dead Sea. Um, and they said the Judean temple is the most remarkable temple you've ever seen in the pagan world, they said. Never seen such a like thing. There's not one single statue. What do they do there? Because they can, can see this thing. It's, it's, like, it's like, you know, you tell a guy coming to yeshiva and they don't have any televisions. Well, what do they do all day? Well, I mean, that was in the days before everybody brought their smartphones and computer and laptops. But, uh, yeah, what laptops, huh? Yeah, uh, these things are all possible. The... Uh, Herod had a bunch of kids. He had a bunch of wives, he had a bunch of kids. We met one of his wives, Miriam. Now, um, according to Josephus, Miriam and Herod had had two sons. Guess what their names are? If anybody's keeping tabs and wants to add to their family tree here. Alexandra. Alexandrus and, what would you guess? It's the same name as every, as every other figure we've had in history. Aristobulus. Oh, no. No, really? Really. Predictably. Um, and... These two sons were warmly received and beloved by the people. Um, I say that this is Josephus' description. Rav Miller says, um, they, he doesn't, Rav, Victor Miller's uh, presentation of history, he doesn't believe that these two sons were actually Miriam's sons. Herod actually tries to pass them off as being from the Hasmonean line, but they really weren't. And by saying that, he's actually reconciled the Gemara in Baba Basra that says that the, Her uh, the Hasmonean line had already died out. Herod had killed them off. Okay, be that as may, they either are or they're not, I'm not sure. But, um, but Alexandrus and Aristobulus, 
are warmly received and Herod doesn't like it. You remember his paranoia. And now it's projected against his own sons. Um, his relatives, including, remember, his sister is always at his side, Shlomis. So relatives, his Shlomis and advisors tell him, the boys are trying to conspire against you. That's what it was in the Greek world. Everybody's against everybody. And the boys, your sons, are trying to overrule you. And um, Herod is bereft. And he testifies against his own sons. He says they're more bemalchus. They're rebelling against the king. And he arranges to have his own sons hanged. And they are in the place that's designated for Puranus, for bad things to happen to Jews. Last week's Parsha, this week's Parsha. Because as we say, whatever you're learning, it's always in Parsha. Where's the, where's the place that's designated for, for, for uh, bad things? In Eric's show? Last week's Parsha, this week's Parsha? What is it? Well, someplace in it, Shechem. Shechem. Shechem was uh, last week Parsha's Vayishlach with Dina and Shechem and Chamor. This week's Parsha, what happens in Shechem? This week's Parsha? Parsha's Vayeshev. Mechiris Yosef. The sale of Yosef is in Shechem. And, 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 and Herod has these two boys hanged for, for sedition in Shechem. Augustus, remember Augustus is this kindly, relatively kindly Caesar back in Rome. It was Augustus who actually makes the comment very dryly. He says, better to have been Herod's dog than one of his children. I'll say. Uh, Herod would kill many, many more. Wait, isn't there Herod's family too? Like, so in a, about um, seven years ago, um, a, an archaeologist by the name of Ehud Netzer was uh, discovered what he claims is the tomb of Herod in Herodian, one of Herod's uh, magnificent structures. He, it's an artificially built mountain. And he feels he found Herod's tomb, and I think there's a strong art case to be made for that. I don't think he proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt, but I think you could make a case that that's the, that, that's the, uh, that's the place. And sadly, this man had actually dedicated his life to looking for Herod's tomb and excavated it Herodian and died there excavating for Herod's tomb uh, sometime thereafter, recently. The whole, there's a whole dedication to him there. Uh, Ehud Netzer, you can check me on that. I'm pretty sure that's his name. Anyway, um, yeah. So he has them hanged in Shechem, and he is uh, he's a, he's a brute. He's a brute. He kills everybody. He doesn't just reserve his murderous rampages for Jews, but they get the brunt of it. He imprisons them. He tortures them. Um, he marries a total of nine wives, and he betray betrays many of these wives and many of the children that these wives bore him. Ehud Netzer, I got it right? Yeah, he yeah. also found the, the oldest synagogue ever found that. He claims to have found the oldest synagogue. I always try to revise the archaeologists and, the, and, and, and make these grants spectacular claims because that's where they can get tenure, that's how they can get positions and so on, and you have to take all of these things with a grain of salt. Maybe they know. I, I, I don't think that they, they, they virtually uh, cannot prove their, their findings beyond a shadow of a doubt. No, fine. It makes, I, you notice my preferred way of phrasing it is uh, they can make a strong argument or they can make an argument and sometimes they make a weak argument, but they can't prove any of these things. Um, Herod, at 70 years old, becomes mortally ill. He has a bloated belly, agonizing pains, worms, and the man absolutely reeks. Nobody can come near him because of this horrid stench that emanates from, from Herod, which of course is, is, is symbolic of everything that he is and has become. And a false rumor circulates that he's finally died. 
logically, ding dong, the witch is dead, there's dancing in the streets, and many celebrate, including a Chachamim by the name of Yehuda ben Sipori, Matisyao ben Margolos, and 40 others are celebrating. They go inside the area of the base of Mikdash and topple a statue that Herod latterly has built, a golden eagle, a golden eagle, not in the area of the temple, but right near it. And when Herod discovers that this is what they're doing, celebrating his own death, it hasn't happened yet, he captures uh, these Siddiquim, this Yehuda and this Matisyao and the 40 others and, have them, and has them all burned alive. Um, and then Herod passed, Herod's about to pass on, and he, like many tyrants, wants to ensure that some kind of power structure remains after his death. So he realizes that nobody can replace him. He has a unique power structure, and there's nobody, none of his heirs are competent enough. So he leaves four heirs and divides up Judea as follows. His youngest son um, is Antipas. And he leaves him the Galilee and what's called Averly Yardane across the Jordan, you know, the two and a half tribes, that, that region over there. He has another, same, another son named Philippus, and he gives him the, the area that we call the Golan, the Eastern Galilee, as it was known back then. His sister Shlomis, he gives the southeastern area, what we think of Ashdod, Yavna, what was formerly the Philistine area. And a son from Akusis, a Shomroni woman named Archelaus, he gives all of Yehuda, this area, around Yerushalayim. Okay, so some of these names, um, I mean, especially his son, his son Antipas, you're going to hear a lot about. Philippus Les, Shlomis, we're going to hear some about, and Archelaus, we're going to hear more about. The, um, and then, as a final touch to a wicked life, he arranges to have thousands of men, all heads of households, and all leaders of different Jewish communities gathered. And the order is, and he leaves the order with his sister, when I die simultaneously, at the, at the, when, when my death is announced, all of these men are to be executed. What is his idea? He knows that when he dies, it's going to be cause for great celebration among Klal Yisrael, and he wants it to be a day of great mourning, and he's going to ensure it even in his dying breaths that they're going to be in mourning as he has all of these men executed. He dies, and Shlomis is about to give the command, and she doesn't have it within her. And she fears uh, a, a, a revolt, and instead of executing all of these leaders of households and, 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 uh, and Jewish leaders, instead she has them released. So now the exaltation is double. Now there's been a, a, there's been a, a, a Yeshua, a, a redemption, and Herod has died. Um, Herod's son Archelaus then is the next immediate ruler in this south region in Eretz Yisrael. He seems to be okay at first. You can imagine the Jews are somewhat wary. Is, the, is he a chip off the old block? Is he like the old man? Uh, he seems to be magnanimous. Immediately the Jews come with, a, with an understandable complaint. The, uh, they protest the harsh deaths of Yehuda ben Sipori and Matisyao ben Margolos and the 40 men who Herod just a few days earlier had had executed. And Archelaus says, oh, you don't like that? And his response is to massacre, three to, some say 3,000, some say up to 9,000 Jew, Jews at the next Korban Pesach celebration. 
You think my dad was bad? Just wait till you get uh, what I have in store for you. And but but Rechavim was ineffective, and Archelaus, at least uh, momentarily, very very temporarily, is a good good connection, are you, uh, to make? The Romans at this point have officially taken over the institution of the Kohen Gadol. They knew exactly what was profitable, and you buy off the Roman institution, you too could be Kohen Gadol. Not for a year usually. It didn't last that long before the Kohen Gadol died, but they liked the power, and so people paid them off. Um, Archelaus plunders, the, excuse me, the Romans under Archelaus, Archelaus plunder the treasures of the base of Mikdash, and now increasing broad-ranging persecution, broad persecutions spread out over uh, Eretz Israel. Archelaus is in power for nine years, but they're nine years of misery, and the Jews complain. And Augustus, back in Rome, who again is not exactly a hero, but he's probably the kindest of the different Roman emperors to the Jews, finally Augustus can't take the complaints anymore, and so he has Archelaus banished to Vienna, and he's replaced now with Antipas, the son who was the ruler of the north. Antipas, meanwhile, has taken on his father's name and is called Herod Antipas. And he does something, I mentioned him earlier this year, did anybody know what else? His probably most famous achievement, Herod Antipas, the second Herod, accomplished. He built a city. No? It's a really important city. It didn't exist before. I'll talk about it tomorrow. Uh, Ras Hashem. I'm not telling you what it is. And Herod built this not that. It's not that. No, Her that was Herod the father. I'm talking about Herod Antipas. Okay, so stay tuned. No, no, Yafo. Are you talking about Yafo's from the Tanakh? Yonah, Navi. No, no, Herod Antipas um, invents a new city. Uh, but we'll get to that, but tomorrow. Um, tomorrow we're going to pick up with the, with the discussion of the Tigdolim in the days of... Um, of the, of the later days of the Second Temple period, um, together with an outbreak of sectarianism um, in the late Second Temple period, there were more sects, more different groups of Jews than at any other time in history, and most notoriously, a particular sect of people that deserve a certain amount of uh, emphasis, they will have a big impact on history, and of course I'm thinking of Christian. the Christians. Have a good night.